0: hi welcome to the vineyard altoona podcast where we attempt to equip people for kingdom release if you have any questions or just want more information you can visit our website at vineyard or any of our social media platforms at vineyard altoona and now here's jerry with the message Before we get started today, I want to remind you of two things. First off, next week we will be in person. So we'll be meeting at the Salvation Army like we did last time for Easter to celebrate. Um, And the second thing is that we're going to have baptisms next week, which is so exciting. So there's still time. If you want to get baptized, just reach out and let us know. You can email me or Derek, Jerry or Derek at vinyardaltuna.org. Um, jerry at vineyardaltuna.org or Derek at vineyardaltuna.org, and we can reach out to you and get you set up for that. So I want to start today by letting you all know that I'm not a very good driver. I've sort of come to terms with this uh, over many, many years. I've come to see that I don't really do anything for the stereotype of like women drivers like I just really don't help that. So it's okay. I'm good at other things. We're not gonna dwell there. But it's really at the point where everyone in my family knows that I'm not a very good driver. And so if I'm driving with my kids in the car and I stop fast, pretty much every time they ask, what did we hit? Because they have been with me on a number of occasions when we have hit something. (laughs) So I am not a good driver. But if you know my husband, Derek, you know that he's kind of like a technician and he thinks about details and he pretty much always has a couple of processes going on in his brain at one time. And so he's a really good driver. Maybe it's because he's also a pilot. Airplanes are kind of a big thing to maneuver and so you have to be aware of your surroundings. But Derek's a really good driver. But whenever we're together in the car, I feel more comfortable when I'm driving. I know that I'm not a good driver. I know that he's a better driver than me, but there's something inside of me that just really wants to be the one in control, that wants to be the one making the decisions. If something has to happen, I wanna be the one who can make the decisions, even though I know that it's better off if Derek is making those decisions. And so I'm wondering if that thing lies in you as well. This thing where we kind of really want to be in control. Sometimes we know that we're not the best person for the job. Sometimes we know that other people are more skilled or more educated in an area than we are, but we want to be the one who's making the decisions. And so a good example of this is the rear view mirror conundrum. So Derek and I, uh, as long as we've been married, we've pretty much had two cars. He has a car and I have a car. Now they're both, they both belong to both of us, but for just a number of reasons, you know, I'm kind of a short person. Derek's an average sized man. So as far as like getting in the car and changing the seat, it's just easier if I'm always in one car and he's always in another or else we're changing the seat constantly. But there have been some occasions for whatever reason that I've had to drive his car. And so for many years, every time I got into his car, I would change the seat so that I could reach the pedals, which is kind of an important thing when you're driving. Um, and I would change the mirrors, every mirror. I would change the rear view mirrors. And the reason I would do that is because Derek has a different setting or a different way that he uses mirrors than I do. So I really like it when the mirror is such that I can see part of my car and I can see the other cars around me. So I would change all the mirrors that way. And every single time Derek got back in his car after I had been driving it, he would say, why do you change my mirrors? It drives me crazy, it takes me forever to get the mirrors back the way I want them, because he has that sort of technician brain and he wants it to be just right. And so we would go back and forth um, about that every time, which again, it didn't happen that often, but he would say, why do you, my mirrors are perfect and you change them. And so after years of this, finally I decided that I would just sleeve his mirrors the way they were one time that I drove his car. Um, And they're amazing. The way that he sets the mirrors is like perfect because he has this system where if a car is coming up from the right, he can see it in the right mirror. And then whenever it disappears from the right mirror, he can see it in the middle mirror. And whenever it disappears from the middle mirror, he can see it to to the right of him in front of him. And so there's really no blind spots on either side. And so I finally decided, well, I would try it his way and it's so much better than my way. And I even told him that. And so from that day forward, I don't change the mirrors when I get in because I know that he set them. He set both of our cars so that the mirrors are perfect. But I had this issue for such a long time even knowing that I'm a bad driver that I was driving with these subpar mirrors and being an even worse driver. And I had done it that way because that's how I knew to do it. That's what made me feel comfortable. And so even though he said his way is better, even though I knew he was a better driver, I didn't quite trust that I would try it his way because it was different from my way. And so I think we all do this. Derek was talking last week about confirmation bias and how we have an opinion. We have fully formed opinions and all the information that comes out out at us, we decide we want to hold on to the information that really, um, doubles down on our opinion and the information that kind of goes counter to our opinion we sort of brush off and let go since we have this confirmation thing that we really want information that will confirm our opinions and we don't really sometimes allow our opinion opinions to be challenged by other things even though they may seem valid and i think that sort of derails us a lot of the time because a lot of the time This information that comes in that's different from our opinions is really what God wants us to pay attention to. It's often what God uses to change our minds or to grow us. And so if we're so stuck in our own opinions of doing things, we might really be missing what God is doing in our lives and in the lives of people around us. What I've found and what I'm growing in finding is that the Christian life is all about humility as we grow and seeing ourselves rightly and understanding that we are completely fallible, that only God is good, only God is wise and he can impart that to us. if We can walk in that humility, then we can walk in step with the Holy Spirit. But if we don't do that, we tend to follow our comfortable ways and the ways that we've always done things, the ways that we've learned from our parents or people around us to do things. And that is sometimes counter to the ways of God. So today, while you're watching this, in case you didn't know, today is Palm Sunday. And what Palm Sunday is, it's sort of the beginning of the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rides into Jerusalem where he'll spend a week. And five days later, he'll be crucified. A week later, he'll rise again on Easter morning. And so today is Palm Sunday, sort of the beginning of this whole week, which is known as Holy Week. And so today, we're going to read from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 through 44. And it says, After he had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethpage and Bethany at a place called Mount Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They said, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power they had seen, saying, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out we're going to focus in here on verses 41 through 44. As he came near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, If you, even you, had only recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts around you and surround you and hem you in on every side. They will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you, And they will not leave within you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. And so Jesus is coming in and the people around are praising God as he comes. And in another version, they say Hosanna. And the word Hosanna kind of has changed connotations from the Old Testament to the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it The definition is the same, which means save. It's something like save us or we're saved. And so in the Old Testament, Hosanna was a cry for help. God, save us. Please save us. And then in the New Testament, in this passage here, it's we're saved. We've been saved. God has heard our call. We've been saved. And so they're saying, we know this is Jesus, the Messiah. We believe that he's here to save us. They knew who Jesus was and they're praising God for it. And even the way that Jesus came into the city allowed them to know, helped them to know that he was there to save them. You see, the king Every year, King Herod would ride into Jerusalem on a war horse and he would come surrounded by soldiers and they would be in armor and it would be a display of the city's power, of the king's power. And it served as sort of a warning to their enemies and to the people within the city, it served as a way to let them know that they were safe, that the king was so powerful, he had so much authority that he would save them and he would keep them safe. And so Jesus comes in, he actually comes in from the other side of Jerusalem, and he comes not on a war horse, but on a borrowed donkey. He comes surrounded by not soldiers in armor, but his disciples, tax collectors and fishermen, not these prominent characters, these sort of lowly people of stature, And Jesus comes in and they recognize what's happening. They see the similarities and they recognize, oh, this is the real king and he's come. So can you imagine what that's like? Have you ever felt that way where you know that God's doing something? Maybe you don't understand it fully, but there's something inside of you that knows God is moving Maybe you've had someone come and sort of give you a word or tell you something they feel like God is saying, um, and it speaks right to your heart. It speaks to maybe a question you've been asking or somewhere where you felt confused or cloudy, or maybe someone has prayed for you and you really sense the presence of God or you've prayed for someone else and you sense the presence of God. And there's like this guttural thing that happens. Maybe you start crying or shaking a little bit. And it's like involuntary, it's not something that you choose to do, it just sort of happens to you because your soul and your mind and your spirit and your heart know that God is moving sense the Holy Spirit really doing something. And I think that's what's happening in this moment. The people are praising God and they can't not praise God because they recognize that something really big is happening. And Jesus says that if they didn't scream, the rocks would scream because God is doing something really big in this moment, even though maybe they don't understand what it is. And so can you imagine what that's like? What that's like for Jesus? What that's like for the people around? What they might be saying to each other in these moments? What joy they would be feeling knowing that after all these years, God has sent Jesus to save them. And so after all that, Jesus retreats And he weeps over the city. Let's go back to verse 41 in the message version. It says, when the city came into view, he wept over it. If you had only recognized this day and everything that was good for you. But now it's too late. In the days ahead, your enemies are going to bring up their heavy artillery to surround you, pressing in from every side. They'll smash you and your babies on the pavement. No stone will be left intact. All this because you didn't recognize and welcome God's personal visit. So Jesus knows, yes, you're praising God now and you're so joyous and happy about what's happening, but you don't get it. He knows that they don't understand what real power looks like, that he's coming in humility, and that's not really what they're looking for. So how do we get from the point of all of the people praising God, saying we're saved, Jesus is here, being so overjoyed, to less than a week later, they're shouting crucify him they want Jesus dead and they ask for that. How do we get from one end of the spectrum to the other? Well, the people saw Jesus and they sensed God moving, but the only framework that they had had for power was the king coming in on a war horse with soldiers. That's how they expected power to come, with authority, with domination over and oppression of others. That's what they thought was going to happen when Jesus came. They thought that he would set them over and above their enemies. But if we know God and the character of God, we know that that's not his character. That in Jesus, true power comes in humility, in bringing low. God loves to work in the people who are low, the marginalized and oppressed, those are the people he draws near to. And so the people didn't get it. They knew that God was doing something and that God was moving and that this was a big moment, but they didn't understand the ways of God. And so what that meant is they were either unable or unwilling to really accept the means by which they would be saved. Isn't this the ultimate example of confirmation bias? Like they really thought it was gonna happen this way and it didn't. And so they wanted the things of God, but they threw God away because he didn't show up the way that they wanted him to. I'm sad to say that we do this all the time. Many of us know God's mission. God's mission is to restore the whole world and all of humanity to himself, to right relationship with himself and to make it all back to the original good state that it was created in. That's the mission of God. And if we are followers of Jesus, he invites us into that mission with him, that we can be people who help God and through which God restore humanity and creation to himself. It's a pretty exciting thing. God wants all of us to partner with him in that way. But I think that sort of in the pandemic, we've lost some of that. We've lost doing God's thing in God's way. And I think God is calling us back, calling us back as a church and as a people to really be on mission in the way that he has called us to be. And sometimes we don't know that right away. We don't know what that looks like, but can we hold space for waiting on God to do his thing his way? If you refuse to give up control of your life and being in charge of your life, then following Jesus really isn't for you. Saying yes to Jesus is really an all or nothing game. Your yes has to be a yes, or it's really a no. We can pretend. We can pretend that we're following Jesus and doing his things. But if ever he asks us for something and we refuse or delay, that's a no. I don't want us to be people who fool ourselves into thinking we're following Jesus. You know, my brother says something. Sometimes he'll say, um, don't talk about it, be about it. And those are the people that I think God is calling us to be. Following Jesus costs you something. It costs you control of your life. And in reality, it may cost you everything. God invites us into this really amazing mission of joining in with him being restored ourselves and restoring the whole world, but it will cost you everything. If there are places in your life where you're not willing to give up, you can ask God for grace for that. The beautiful thing is that even the faith to believe that God will transform our our hard things into good comes from him. So if you need faith, ask God for faith. If you need grace, ask God for grace. He will give that to you. Even the ability to trust him comes from him. And so I think we've sort of allowed things to sort of crowd in. And especially as we enter in, you know, a lot of us were at home, um, sort of taking events off of our schedule for a while. And now things are sort of crowding back in. We're entering back into reality. And as things come back, Maybe things that God has showed us that weren't really that great for us in the first place, things start to come back and crowd. We need to be people who are intentional. To follow God, to say yes, and to do it in the way that he's calling us. Lack of intentionality breeds complacency. If we cannot be intentional about holding space for what God is calling us to do or doing things in God's way, then we will be complacent. That's just what happens. Humans do not naturally move toward doing God's things or toward God's will. We have to be intentional about being connected to God and about waiting for him. It's uncomfortable It's uncomfortable to wait for God. It's uncomfortable to do things that are counter to the ways that we feel safe. But God didn't promise you comfort. Quite the opposite, actually. He said, in this life you will have trouble, but take heart because I have overcome the world. That's the kind of invitation that God has for us. So let me kind of bring this down a little As I said earlier, the mission of God is to restore all of humanity and all of the world to himself. And he has shaped and gifted each one of us with um, gifts. And I think actually our passions, the things that make us come alive, really align with those things. So he shaped each one of us to sort of provide a kingdom role, to walk in a kingdom way, to help bring about that restoration and that reconciling of people and the earth to God. Each one of us is designed specifically for that. And so as I talk about what that looks like for you, I think some of us, for some of us, that's pretty clear. I think some of us sort of really know what makes us come alive, what God has asked us to do, how he's gifted us, what we're good at, what we're not very good at, what we need to work on. I think a lot of us know that. And so some of us um, are aware. Some of us, as I talk about that think, man, I have no clue. I have no clue that I'm, what I'm good at. Or some of us may even think I'm not good at anything. That's not true. That's not the kind of God we serve. And so if that's you, You can just offer those things to God and say, God, help me shake this out. Or you can ask someone to walk alongside you and pray into that with you. God is not a God who hides. God reveals. And so if we will be intentional to seek him, I am confident that he will tell you what you're for and show you the things that are walking in line with what he's called you to and I think for some of us, as we've sort of allowed the busyness to come back, we've allowed our jobs or our work or schoolwork or TV or other responsibilities to crowd back in, to crowd our lives again. And I think God is asking us to be intentional, to hold space for what he has called us to do, either for what you know he's called us to do, or for what you don't yet know, but are sure that he's called, he's called you for something. So to, to really hold and wrestle with that. And so my question, as we sort of wrap this up, and think about moving into communion, is how is God inviting you into his mission? And what do you need to do to walk in step with with what he's called you to do in his way? What are the things that have sort of crowded that? And so maybe you need to work less and rest more so that you have space to really receive what it is that God has for you and energy to do it. Maybe you need to invite a neighbor or a coworker Into relationship and really just begin walking out life with them. Maybe God has called you to be sort of a connector in that way or to bring people um, to Him for freedom. Maybe you need to be more intentional in spending daily time with God. Maybe you need to be in the Word and reading the Bible daily. Maybe you need to be in quiet time and just sitting with him. Maybe you need to take a walk and invite God to come along and just talk with him. Maybe you need to worship. We all need to have these connections so that we can receive what it is that God has for us. And that's the most important thing that we could do with our day, is spending time and being connected to God. Only then can we really receive what it is that he has for us. And so my question, as we sort of, wrap up here is where do you need to press into humility and participate with God's mission in the way that he would call you to? Thank you again for choosing the Vineyard Altoona podcast. We're so excited to see how God will release his kingdom in and through you today for the glory of Jesus Christ. With this, be blessed, and we'll see you next time.